If you have a copy of God's Word there with you, we begin today in the book of Colossians, the second chapter, Colossians chapter 2. We'll read verses 16 through 23 through the end of the chapter. Colossians 2, beginning at the 16th verse. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as their use, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of our God. Father, our need is immense. Grant to us by your kindness and your promise that for the sake of your people you help us see and hear and understand the truth. Work among us by your spirit, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you have a certain age and grew up in a certain state or multiple states, you may recall there was a time when most retail businesses were not open on Sundays. The few that were, if they sold beverage alcohol, couldn't sell it on Sunday, or they could, but there was a limit as to what they could sell. These laws regulated the hours and what could be sold, and they were called blue laws. Now, did you ever wonder, if you heard that term blue law, where that came from? I have done the research for you, those like me who have no idea where that came from. Those who do know this, you have far too much time on your hands if you're actually aware of that. Blue law in United States history is a law forbidding certain secular activities on Sunday. The name derives from Samuel A. Peters' General History of Connecticut, 1781, which purported to list the stiff Sabbath regulations at New Haven, Connecticut. The work was printed on blue paper. That's how we ended up with the term blue laws. In 1781, somebody printed this thing on blue paper, and thus they became known as blue laws. This was an attempt to codify and apply a version of Christianized Sabbath regulation to the culture. Even without those laws, there have been and still are believers who will confess today that this day that we are gathered is actually Christian 
Sabbath. Even as a believer, both young and then older, I wasn't sure what to think of Sundays and what was allowed and what wasn't. Now, I grew up on a small farm, and cattle got fed, right? That went under mercy, right? Acts of mercy. And we'd go to church. And we usually went morning and evening. We didn't do much else on Sundays. There was a time, I recall, when we got behind in the hay season. And if you get behind in the hay season, catching up can be difficult. If you've had rain at the wrong time, you don't want to get the hay on the ground if a chance of rain because it tends to dirty up the hay and the cattle don't like to eat it. And there's no point in doing this if the cattle won't eat it. I remember one particular Sunday, my extended family, now you understand, this wasn't just me and my immediate family. This included uncles, grandparents, great uncles, etc. Some summers we would put up as many as 20,000 bales of hay between three or four different farms. So we worked one Sunday trying to catch up. And lo and behold, one of the tractors quit working. And I still recall to this day my grandfather sitting in the shade by the pickup, taking a sip of water and saying, just isn't a good idea work on Sunday. Now, I tended to agree with him, but I'm not sure there was anything sanctified about the agreement. Um, I was tired of hay season usually about two hours in of what was usually a multi-week project. But over and over again through the years, I would hear people say things like that. Um, just shouldn't work on Sunday. And what it started sounding to me like was more a superstition than a principled understanding. Let's acknowledge that we can have differing opinions about this, and we do. Today we come to the part of our confession, proposed confession, entitled Lord's Day. Here's what we say. We believe the first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and points to the rest that awaits the people of God. It should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, please note, this is different than what shows up in some Baptist confessions, including the New Hampshire, upon which we base our confession. We did make an adjustment there because it had an article, Christian Sabbath. And if you start studying the Sabbath, what you discover is there's a lot about it in the Old Testament and considerable about it in the New. One brother put it this way, the longest of all the Ten Commandments and if you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the lengthiest one there is the fourth commandment regarding Sabbath. The one that is the longest seems to also be the most controversial. 
Was it intended uniquely for Israel? If it carries over to Christians, can seventh-day rest be transferred to Sunday, first-day observance? Remember, Sabbath began sundown on Friday and concluded at sundown on Saturday. If not, how do we justify worshiping on the Sabbath when the original commandment said nothing about worship? And worship is hardly rest. Hmm. Anybody puzzled besides me? I think I've got clarity here. But you see, I think what happens is we confuse the reason for our gatherings when we make it more about a required day than a glorious reality. Now let me explain what I mean by that. The Lord's Day is a celebration for our good. Let that be kind of the overarching reality here. The Lord's Day is a celebration for our good and for the glory of God. So let's consider this first, the nature and observance of the Sabbath. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. There's a whole lot more texts than we can even begin to adequately cover in a single portion of a single message. What you're going to get here is basically a survey. All right? If you're looking for a deep exposition on this, you're going to be sorely disappointed today. All right? So let's consider. First of all, Sabbath is seen in the creation narrative. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Now, you're given that Genesis chapter 2, and there's nothing else in the rest of Genesis really to speak to the whole issue. Not until you get to the book of Exodus that you find further declaration. Not only is it seen in the creation narrative, it's a settled part of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. Even prior to the giving of the law from Sinai, if you look in Exodus, there were instructions related to manna and Sabbath day. Now, you remember the whole thing with manna. The Lord rained down manna out of heaven, and they were told, how much do you gather? Just enough for the day. Every morning, you got enough manna to feed your family. Now, those thrifty souls who were a little concerned would often gather extra. And how'd that work out for them? Horrid, because by the next day, it was filled with bugs and rotted. Okay? Except on Friday. On the day before Sabbath, you gathered enough for two days. Because there wasn't any manna going to come down out of heaven on Sabbath. Now, if you didn't gather enough for two days, guess what happened on Sabbath? You did without. If you did gather enough, you had enough and it didn't go bad. May I point out that should tell us something about the supernatural nature of manna. I've 
I've read certain commentators who say, well, it wasn't really anything from heaven. It's just stuff they found, and there was a natural explanation. And my answer to that is, how do you explain the manna that rots one time and doesn't the other? Doesn't make any sense at all. God was caring for his people. But even before the giving of the law, this shows up. Now you get to the 20th chapter of Exodus, and you read these words, beginning at 8th verse. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The fourth commandment was quite clear. And it's reiterated throughout the entire five books of Moses. In fact, we are told of an occasion when a man violated the Sabbath. In Numbers chapter 15, while they're out in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, you know, what's he gathering? For a fire. He's gathering firewood. Kindling. They brought him to Moses and Aaron, all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And they took him outside the camp and they stoned him to death. Now, be careful here, folks. Well, that seems awfully severe. This is the law of God under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, which was keeping covenant with God. And the penalty was death. Now, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you find besides the weekly Sabbath, there was a Sabbath every seventh year for the land. And then at Jubilee on the 50th year, you had an extended Sabbath celebration, this great celebration. Sabbath was connected to the remembrance of deliverance from Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 5. You'll remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. And as Israel matures, as they go through the era of the judges and the kings and then the divided kingdom, one of the judgments brought against Israel was because of the way they observed Sabbath or the fact that they didn't observe Sabbath. In the book of Isaiah, in the first chapter, verse 13, Isaiah says, Bring no more vain offerings, incense, and abomination to me. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. He tells them, they may have been doing it outwardly, but inwardly they were wicked in their celebrations. The Lord loathed that kind of hypocrisy. But further, if you look in other texts of the Old Testament, you find that this became a means of God raining down judgment. When they didn't do this, God rained down judgment on them. Now, I admit, that is a cursory survey of the Old Testament. 
but it basically gives you a heart of what Sabbath was about. Please note something else. Sabbath, nowhere in the Old Testament is there an instruction per se about worship specifically connected to the day. It was about reverence for God. It was about rest, beseeching from labor. It was a way of living faithfully in a world where everybody thought you'd have to work as hard as you can every single day of the week to stay alive. It was an instruction for faith. Trust me. But further, the Sabbath, if you move into the New Testament, you find that Christ addresses Sabbath. In fact, if you go through the New Testament, the Gospels, let me summarize for you, and I got this from Tom Wills, his book, The Christian and the Sabbath. He sees six things Jesus teaches about the Sabbath. I'll summarize. If you want more detail, I'll gladly give you these notes at some point. First of all, there was apparently some analogy between Christ's disciples taking grain from a field on Sabbath and two sets of actions in the Old Testament. And you remember what happened? Jesus' disciples are hungry. Remember, there are no fast food restaurants. There's not even convenience stores. There's not any place to get food. And so it was part of the law, the Mosaic legislation, that whenever they harvested a field, they would leave the corners unharvested, and if they dropped anything, they left it in the field. This is so the poor, the destitute, could gather something to eat. So here's the picture. They're walking through the field, getting these heads of barley or other grain, and they're rubbing them out in their hands and blowing away the chaff and eating raw grain. Doing health food, organic, before it was popular. Now, having tried this, I can tell you, friend, you'd have to be awful hungry in my book, to do that. It beats starving, but boy, it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of jaw activity. And the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, why do your disciples do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus compares their action to two from the Old Testament. The eating of the bread of the presence by David and his companions. Remember, David is running. And he's trying to get away from Saul. And he stops at a place where the, the Ark of the Covenant is and where the, uh, the priests are doing the work of the tabernacle. And they're hungry. And they said, only, the only thing I got is the bread of the presence. And King James calls it the showbread. And they ate it. God didn't kill them. It was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. And yet they ate it. And somehow he also compares it to the activity of priests in the temple. That the priests in the temple do things on Sabbath, but they're not penalized for doing it. That's the first thing. And I, I think you should note this. He doesn't give instruction when he makes this defense, but he loves his disciples and defends them. That ought to tell you something. Second thing Jesus teaches. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 12, 8, Mark 2, 8, 2, 28, Luke 6, 5. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Further, he taught, thirdly, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Remember, one of the arguments they made was, 
How dare you heal on the Sabbath because healing was seen as doing a work? There are six other days to get healed. Why are you bothering to do this on the Sabbath? You're making him break the Sabbath. In fact, what they claimed was, he isn't from God healing the sick because he did it on Sabbath. Hmm. Fourth, he taught the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Fifth, he taught the Pharisees thought more of their animals than of human need. Here was his argument. You, you get an ox out of a ditch, you take care of your livestock on Sabbath, and you think that's okay and it's wrong for me to heal? Seventh, he taught that he, like his father, were actually actively engaged on Sabbath. John 5, 17, 5, 17 and 18, Jesus answered, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That goes back to him being Lord of the Sabbath, but he makes a claim here. My father and I are at work what day? Sabbath. Hmm. You see, and I quote here from Tom Wells, all this teaching is as applicable to every day as it is to a Sabbath. It was not Jesus' interest in the Sabbath that produced even this response from him. What do these points have in common? It was his enemy's preoccupation that led him to say these things. It was his enemies being upset and making accusations that he said what he said. Further, it appears the Apostle Paul clearly sees Sabbath as optional in observance. Look with me for a moment. Got your Bibles handy there. I know you do. I can see you're ready. You're just anxious. Romans 14. Romans, the 14th chapter. Now, I, I think Romans 14 and 15 simply doesn't get enough play most of the time for what it can say to us about relating to one another, about the grace we need to show one another. But in Romans, the 14th chapter, at the 5th verse, hear these words. Here's, here's the apostle. If you're not reading with me, just listen. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now can I stop there and tell you what he just said? Some of them thought they ought to observe a day and others didn't. Some thought they ought to eat, and others thought they ought to fast. And what does he say about both sides? If you do it to the Lord, you've done the right thing. One side's not right and the other wrong. Be convinced in your own mind. For none of us, verse 7, lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are what? The Lord's. 
For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that, we might, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Notice that, not, excuse me, that 10th verse, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. Brothers and sisters, we, whenever it comes to matters of conscience, we should be so careful about the judgments we make about other believers. In fact, we should restrain and refrain from that. Now, it's not just there. It's the text we started with this morning. Colossians, the second chapter, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now, understand what he's saying there. Within Judaism, within the Mosaic legislation, there was clean food and unclean food, right? Some things you could eat, some things you couldn't. What does Paul say about food? Eat what you can in clear conscience. If you're bothered, he's saying to the Jewish believers, if you can't even imagine eating anything but kosher, eat kosher. But don't look down on your Gentile brothers and sisters if they don't. And Gentile brothers and sisters, if you can eat everything, don't look down on your Jewish brothers who because of conscience can't do so everybody get along but he's not done or with regard to three general categories festival new moon sabbath festivals annual events new moon monthly events sabbath what weekly these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs where? To Christ. Now, why does Paul do this? I believe he's saying, as we've said before, the Mosaic legislation was part of that covenant. Christ fulfills that covenant. I came not to abolish, but to what? Fulfill, Matthew 5. In that fulfillment, many things change, right? We no longer believe there's one place where you meet God, right? Under the Mosaic legislation, there was one place to bring sacrifices and to meet with God. God's presence was specially and uniquely centered on the temple in Jerusalem. What does Jesus tell the woman at the well? The hour is coming and has now come when they shall no longer worship in this mountain here with the Samaritans, nor in Jerusalem because it's no longer about what? Geography. Everyone who knows the Lord in the new covenant is themselves individually a temple a dwelling place of God by His Spirit. The sacrificial system's over too. We don't bring sacrifices. Right? You, you do get that, right? That's, that's why it makes me nervous when I hear churches, well, let's come up here to the altar. The what? Well, we've got to have an altar. 
No, you don't. There's been one altar under the terms of the new covenant. It is the cross of Christ. He is the altar. No other sacrifices matter. I present myself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. That is my reasonable act of worship. But it's not tied to a geographical location. Now some of you say, well, I, I think I see where you're going, preacher. I gave it away, didn't I? My friends, we are no longer under that legislation. We are, in fact, under the terms of the new covenant. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, he can live under the Mosaic legislation, but he quite obviously didn't see it as morally obligatory. Didn't have to. Maybe after all, how are you going to get a bunch of Gentile slaves who come to Jesus, have come to faith in Christ, how are they going to observe a day of rest when they're slaves? Have you pondered that? Hmm. One more and we'll move on. The author of Hebrews in the fourth chapter, and I, I'm going to have to hurry, but my brothers and sisters, look at that text at some point. He talks about a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and the Sabbath rest for us is not a day. It's a person. Now, I'm not saying that it's a bad idea to have a day off. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to observe one day and seven to rest. What I'm saying is we must be careful that we don't equate Lord's Day and Sabbath because they are not the same thing. Let me see if I can summarize quickly the second part of this, the nature and observance of Lord's Day. Now, you may be wondering, why do we re read in the response of reading Luke chapter 24? After all, that's about the resurrection and it's not Easter. Preacher, it's October. Why are we reading about the resurrection? Because we foolishly delegate the celebration of resurrection to one time a year when every single first day of the week ought to be a reminder to us that Christ came out of the grave. There's a new day. It is not the Sabbath of rest. Our rest is in Christ. The new day is that Jesus ain't dead no more. He is alive. The kingdom has entered time and history. The king reigns from glory. And no matter how bad my week looked, no matter the tragedy that I face, no matter the struggles that I have, no matter how dark it looks, Every week ought to be a reminder, first day of the week, Jesus conquered all of that. Now, if you look at the New Testament, you'll find all four Gospels make a point, first day of the week. The practice of the early church, Acts chapter 20, first day of the week, they're gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I expect a little grace here, folks. He started before it got dark and he didn't quit till midnight. I promise you, you're out of here before midnight. You're welcome. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so there'll be no collecting when I come. 
first day of the week. Now we know likely this was either very early in the morning they would gather or late in the evening when the work day was done. But they gathered first day of the week. And here's an intriguing statement that you find. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, first chapter, 20th verse. Paul, excuse me, John says this, I was in the spirit on, and here's the phrase he uses, the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. By the time John writes, the designated Lord's day. What's Lord's day? The day the Lord has resurrected. He is giving us this glorious comfort. If you take time to dig through the early church fathers, and I, I let others do this for me, please, I'm not claiming I went and digging in the early church fathers. There's only so much time that one can do this. But by uh, the time of the second century, Ignatius, one of the church fathers, noted that there were Jews who had come to faith. In fact, here's how he says, those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observed the Sabbath, but lived in observance of the Lord's day. Athanasius in 345 says the Sabbath was the end of the first creation, the Lord's day is the beginning of the second. Eusebius in the 4th century even applied what was at that time the pagan term Sunday to the first day of the week. It is not until the 8th century that somebody specifically tried to identify Sunday with Sabbath. And there was debate about this for years after. And it's really not till the Puritan era that we see much of what we see today in that equation of Sunday and Sabbath. Now what in the world does that have to do with us today? I know you've been waiting for me to get to the point. How should we view Lord's Day? First thing I said, it is a weekly reminder of the resurrection. Worldliness, too much connection to this world, too much influence from this world is lessened when we realize the reality of the resurrection. Secondly, it came to be known as the Lord's Day, so we should think of it in those terms. Thirdly, we should remember the early church in Jerusalem appears to have met daily, initially, not just once a week, daily, and eventually that transforms into what appears to be a weekly, regular meeting. Fourth, and this is connected to Lord's Day. We should long to be around our family. We should want to be around one another. Fifthly, whether we want to or not, our gathering is commanded. Hebrews 10th chapter, do not forsake assembling together. Folks, this is why I'm glad that we can do the streaming, especially for folks who can't be here. I'm glad they can watch. But let me make something very clear. Streaming church is not gathering to worship. Streaming is watching. It is spectator by its very nature. If you can be here, be here. First converts on the day of Pentecost, sixthly, 
were committed to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Fellowship. Seventh, as much as possible, when there's an opportunity to gather with the saints, we should do so, especially a given for Lord's Day. Eight, don't judge one another over how you observe this day in terms of what you allow or you don't. As long as you don't forsake the assembly, you're free. Now, you're not free to sin. still remember college, had some friends. They got real big on Sunday being celebrated almost like Sabbath, and they said, TV's out, no football. Okay. So what are you going to do this afternoon? We're going to go to the student union and play snooker. So you playing a billiard game isn't a violation of the day. But me watching a football game is? I think you're a little catched, brother. Something ain't quite connecting up there. Ninth. And this is, I hope you feel the weight of this. My friend, if you don't want to be around the Lord's people, what in the world makes you think you'd have any interest in heaven? I really don't comprehend this. And I think I don't because it's incomprehensible. How can you claim to love the Lord whom you've never seen and not love your brother whom you have? I think John said that. Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, the head of the church, your Lord and Savior, my friend, is your complete rest. When the church gathers you ought to gather. Every time there's opportunity and lust providentially hindered, you should gather. Now, I know there's such a thing as you can have so many meetings, you just wear people out. We try to be careful about how much we do that because we know the busyness of life. But my friends, here's my question. Why is it that in the schedules so many of you keep, the jettison is the church? Why is that acceptable? It is not gathering just for the sake of gathering. We gather to worship. We gather for the apostles' teaching. We gather for fellowship with one another. And can I give you a little hint on that too? You ought to be working to get to know a lot of people. Now, I know what it's like. It's always easy to talk to people you already know. And you want to see them. I get that. That's easy. You know what's not easy? Walking up to people here that you see and you know by face but don't know and striking up a conversation and getting acquainted. Well, what if they don't like me? Well, that's their problem. <laughs> what if I don't like them? Yeah, that's your problem. Maybe your liker needs some adjusting. Hey? Now we're about to transition into the Lord's table. And I think it's a great place to transition. First of all, let me do a little housekeeping here. Did everybody get one? If you didn't get one of these, would you 
Raise your hand. It's, we're using the sealed cups. I see some folks around. Look around, fellas. There's some close to you on both sides. Just hold your hand up. Don't be shy. I know it's embarrassing to you, but it's all right. I've been embarrassed so many times standing in front of a church. I don't know what to do with myself. So I want to make sure everybody gets this. Okay. We've gotten everybody. We're getting there. Anybody left? If you didn't get one, you're a baptized believer in Christ, please lift your hand. Make sure you get them. Now, let me give you a little hope here. Our intent is, we've said this before, so say I now again, we, we hope this is the last time we have to use it. But I, I prefer doing this to not do it. Okay? Did we get everybody? Anybody been left out? All right. Now, why does this matter? If our rest is found in Christ and Christ alone, He is our Sabbath. He has done for us what we cannot do. He is our salvation. Our only hope is Him. Don't look to me. I look to Him. When we gather as the people of God, why do we gather? Because He's the head and we're the body. He's our Savior. He is our elder brother. And we're all part of the same family. We gather to eat. But the feeding is a spiritual feeding. You see, when we do this, folks, we testify that we're His. And our commonality is Him. These things do not change. They are what they are. But if, if we receive them as symbols of who he is his body for us his blood for us we testify of his grace until the end when we shall gather for the marriage supper of the lamb so my friend if you're his this is for you christian examine yourself are you in the faith do you trust christ is this your hope are you, to the best of your knowledge, at peace with those around you? Then this is for you. This does not require your perfection. It requires his. But it does require your sincerity, your honesty. And so now I call upon us together. If you will, the clear wrapper, pull back. And that will allow the wafer to come out. Remember what our Lord Jesus said when he took the bread. He blessed it. He gave thanks for it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Our Father, we rejoice in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That truly the second person of the Trinity became flesh for us. And by his invasion of time and earth, we are brought to peace with you. And for this, we give thanks in his name. Amen. And then if you'll peel the next layer for the cup,
I remind you, he also said in that day, this cup is the what? New covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. Christian, we are part of that many. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we are reminded that we are saved by the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish. May we rest in his finished work. O oh Lord, may we glory in what we are granted. May we rejoice to celebrate on Lord's Day every single week the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the Lord's return, the certainty that we are saved by what he has done. May these be the anchors for our soul in a world gone mad. In the storms and sorrows of this life, may we rest in Christ's finished work. This we pray joyfully in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe Nathan is going to lead us now in a closing hymn. Let's stand together. Sam, we sing this third verse and chorus of this.